my view of art is very much that it is a conversation. Right. Um, if I'm not communicating, then 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 I don't think I'm doing anything. I loved being Cinderella in the school play when I was about six or seven. It was oh, okay. Wonderful, and I, it was a feeling that I hadn't ever had. I think anywhere else, um, and that I still I still get on stage. It's a it's a whole other way of being in the world for me, and a lot of a lot of anxiety disappears, and a lot of doubt disappears for that moment when I'm yeah. performing. Um, it makes sense in a way that a lot of my life doesn't make sense. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today, we're getting better acquainted with Adrian. Hello, Adrian. Hello, Dave. <laughs> so this is an interesting conversation to be having because we've just had a conversation for your podcast yes but it wasn't recording <laughs> i don't think so i'm gonna go home and check but it, uh, it may yeah may or may it not was recording and so rather than try and repeat the whole experience and try and the, live up the to beauty it, and genius of what we've just done yeah we've decided yeah. not to try and replay that conversation but luckily we were also meeting up to record this yes. and so the uh, afternoon isn't wasted not wasted yet <laughs> <laughs> he says now double checking that he's recording so the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? We met, I think, basically through Paula Varjak. We were up in Edinburgh together last year. That's right. And you were in the venue next door to mine. Yep. Were you downstairs? Were you in that club? Yeah, we were. no, we weren't in the club, but we were right next door to that, that we were in the Fiddler's Elbow downstairs. You were downstairs. in the Fiddler's Elbow. Oh, right, the Fiddler's Elbow downstairs. Yeah. Exactly, I know. So it was a really yes. sort of unfortunate grouping of uh, venues because it was really hard for people to find any yes. which venue they were going for yes B- but you were sort of next door i was in the street That's also right. downstairs and so i was aware of you guys your stand-up tragedy group and we must have met you and i well i met you for the first time in character i think right because you were flyering yes. so you were in character as samantha man yes i think that's right we'll get into samantha a little bit later on i guess but yeah that's how we met we met in edinburgh yes. and then we met again at george lefkowitz's night that's right now that's when i saw you perform as samantha for the first time so yes. everybody else from stand up tragedy managed to catch you in edinburgh and we're raving about you but I, I didn't manage to make it. When you're there for 14 days, there's always stu- there's some stuff that you miss. Right. Days. But George put on a night which was like a, his favourite acts that he'd seen in Edinburgh, and you were one of them. It was such a fun night. It was a good it? night. It was really good. Yes. And then so I got to see you there, and I saw Paula again, but I'd seen her a few times, because I think... Because she, she comes to Spark London, my true storytelling oh, night okay. that I run in, in Hackney, so I've met her there right. a few times. Right. She but knows... Yeah. She's one of these people who knows a lot of people. Right, she is, yeah. yeah. So the second question that I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Well, I'm an actor, although I prefer to say performer, I think, because that's more inclusive. It feels more inclusive. I work in device theatre. So I work regularly for a company that's based in Berlin. That gives me a kind of identity, the fact that I do work regularly for them. I'm not always working for them, but there is a kind of regular commitment to stuff that they're doing. I'm a divisor and a performer with them. And through them, I've met other people that I've worked with also in device theatre. And then in London, I mostly do this character performance, Samantha. That's what I'm doing performance-wise here. And otherwise, 
I am writing, and that's about it, really. Okay. Playing the piano in my flat. <laughs> At the moment, I'm doing very little because I, I pulled out of a project with a German company to give me more time to be kind of calm and quiet, and that's been really nice. It means that I find it very difficult to explain what it is that I do. Right. Well, I have that same problem. As you know from the, the bit of, the, of your podcast that we didn't manage to record, I yes. find it hard to describe what I do. So do you split your time then between Berlin and London? Is that what you're yeah, doing? Yeah, it, it, it depends on what's going on. So the end of last year, I was away most of the time. I was also doing a project in Graz in Austria. So I was there from the beginning of September to the beginning of October. And then from then on, it was lots of little bits and pieces. So it was performances in Germany with this Berlin, with Nico and the Navigators. And then performances in Graz with that company um, and rehearsals with, with another company. And so it was, it was all kinds of different things coming together. And now I've been, I've had maybe one or two performances a month since January with one or other of those people okay. so it 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 varies a lot there's no there's no rhythm to it and one of the problems that i have is that if i don't know exactly what the commitment is going to be i will say yes to things if it looks like i've got space in my diary and then realize afterwards that i've said yes to things that will then clash because there are all kinds of they're going to be Don't performances develop. that I hadn't taken account of, right. other bits and pieces or rehearsals that I didn't know were going to happen. And then suddenly, you know, there's just everything is happening at once. And then I'll step back and then suddenly nothing is happening at all. So I find it quite difficult to get a balance. How did you come to this place where you're doing all of those things? Where, where did that start for you? Um, well, I mean, you were talking about stories earlier. I, I, there's always... You can start a story almost at any point, can't you? I think there are lots of ways of telling that story. The, probably the clearest way is to say that after I finished university, I went and trained in Paris at the Jacques Lecoq School. Um, and before I even went to Lecoq, I did a clown course in London with a guy called Mick Barnfather. Um, and I met some people there who trained with Philippe Gaulier, who had recently moved to Paris then. And they said, oh, no, no, Lecoq's finished, you have to go to Gaulier. So I did my year at Lecoq, uh, which was brilliantly useful, um, and then went and did various bits and pieces with Gaulier over the next two years. Mostly the people I met at Gaulier, actually, uh, were people that I kept in touch with performance-wise. I did things with Lecoq people for a while and then with Gaulier people. I said this was going to be a clear story. It's not a very clear story. <laughs> but one of the people that I met at Gaulier said to me at one point, we were working together in Austria. There were years, there were several years of doing things with people that didn't become performances. Right. Meeting, working on stuff, finding out what is this? How do we use this stuff that we've learned? At a certain point, Sylvie, a friend of mine who lives in Vienna, said, oh, I've, I've heard about this residency that's happening in Italy. You should apply. And I, and I did that. And it was at a point where I had something that I wanted to work on, a solo piece, and they were, it was a course for people who had solo pieces they wanted to work on. And Nico, who's the director from Nico and the Navigators, was invited to give a workshop as part of that residency. And she happened to be looking for people at that point. And I was very much lost in terms of what I was doing right. with my professional life. I was temping in a mental health clinic in High Wycombe and feeling as though maybe at some point soon I was going to have to decide that acting wasn't wasn't what I was going to do with the right. rest of my life. And so this came along at exactly the right moment. I was so excited by the work that I saw that Nico showed us on DVD. I remember thinking, I, this is, I, want, I want to work with these people more than I have ever wanted to do 
anything almost. Wow. And it was a very stressful time. It was a very confusing time, those, those seven weeks or ten weeks or whatever it was for various reasons. And at the end of it, she said, well, let's see, I'll call you. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, she took me, and so we, and then and we've we've been working together on and off since then. Wow, okay, which has been wonderful. Yeah, it's given a kind of focal point to my to my professional life, I think, because it gives me. I feel like I'm able to give myself permission to do other things and things that don't necessarily reach a conclusion straight away because I'm working with somebody who has a very clear organisation and very clear projects and performances scheduled and, and so right. on and so forth. Um, so it kind of gives you the freedom to do other things because you've got a kind of regular gig. Yes, yeah. exactly. exactly. So I guess part of that story or another way that story can be told is like when did you realise that you wanted to perform? Right, and exactly that's another that would be another place to start which is also very woolly. <laughs> I, it's the first thing I ever wanted to be. Uh, the first thing I remember ever wanting to be right. was an actor. That was when I was very, very small and I think I probably saw that as being a film actor. I was very taken with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers films. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think I, I kind of wanted to be a composite of the two of them. That was my, that was my <laughs> ideal. Like that, was, that was my idea of what... But not even... I think at that stage I just wanted to be that. But, yeah, I think I, I loved the idea of doing stuff and people watching. I loved being Cinderella in the school play when I was about six or seven. It oh, was okay. wonderful. And I, it was a feeling that I hadn't ever had, I think, anywhere else. Um, and that I still I still get on stage. It's a, it's a whole other way of being in the world for me. And a lot of, a lot of anxiety disappears and a lot of doubt disappears for that moment when I'm yeah. performing. Um, it makes sense in a way that a lot of my life doesn't make sense. Right. Um, so I always knew that that's what I wanted to do, but um, I very quickly decided that it was it was much too scary to try and do it because I might fail. And it depends a lot on, you know, I thought I would have to be good at it and I don't know if I'm going to be good at it. Um, so then I decided that maybe I ought to do something more sensible. So for a long time I, I tried to persuade myself that there might be other things that I would like to do, like being a lawyer or being a publisher or being a... I don't know what um, else there might have been. For a while I wanted to be a... When I was very small I wanted to be a milkman until my mother pointed out that I'd have to run up and down driveways. <laughs> that seemed ideal because you get afternoons off. Okay. Uh, that was so my you'd, you'd just be working in the mornings <laughs> exactly. and that, that was what appealed. But then my mother pointed out I'd have to get up very early in the morning and run up and yeah. down driveways. So, yeah, so there was all that kind of going on. Even throughout my teenage years, I still... I, I was acting in school plays, but I was never... You know, I was never picked to be... Oh, yeah. Hi. Hello, um, that's my neighbour. We're in my back garden, <laughs> I should say. Yeah, we have friendly neighbours here. <laughs> we do. Yeah, I was never a star at school. I was never one of these people who, you know, they're always the, always the people who are picked to be the lead. Right. And I was always picked to be somewhere in the background. So me too, until until Little Shop of Horrors came along, and that was like you can get to be the star. Did you play the Rick Moranis? Yeah, guy? I did. I did. I oh, got to be amazing. Seymour. But I wanted to be the dentist. I went into all of the. <laughs> Into all of the auditions, that's what I wanted to be, the dentist. And I was, like, disappointed initially that I got Seymour, which oh, is no. ridiculous because it's the main... Yeah, but then it's, I soon realised that it was a great part. But uh, that's an play. interesting... That's, that's still an interesting question, isn't it? Because you, you have to decide, even as a professional performer, uh, where are you going to put your energy? Because 
if you want to be a star, now if you're in London, say, and this is something that I've never been any good at, but if you're in London and you want to be cast in theatre in London, you have to decide what it is that you want to do. You have to decide what part am I going to play, and then you have to construct a, a, a kind of, it's like a little presentation, um, like a series of presentation documents, a photograph and a CV and yeah. so on and so forth, uh, to persuade people that you're going to be able to do that. And so you have to decide, is that going to be interesting enough? You know, the, the best part is, you know, the Orlando Bloom character in, in Pirates of the Caribbean, for example. That's the, that's, the, that's the star billing for a young man. Right. Um, and yet, Johnny Depp is the most interesting character right. in that film. Right, um, but he's, he's only the star accidentally. He, he was never supposed to be. Right. Um, and there are many, many... I mean, that's not even a very good, very good example because Johnny Depp gets so much screen time. And Johnny but Depp could have played the Orlando Bloom part. He could have played Like, he's, he's got himself to a point in his career where yes. he can play the, the lead, but yes. he can play any other part that he could possibly want. People yes. will give it to him. Which is an extraordinary situation. Yeah. Most people don't get that choice. No. And they get to choose either to be the slightly dull lead or the more interesting kind of... Character. Character, exactly. Which mm. may be a very small part, but may be more challenging and more... Um, yeah, gratifying. Yeah. But you do have to make... You have to kind of choose, don't you? You well, have to make that decision. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And, Most and, people. Well, Johnny Depp excludes. Practically, I think, yeah. For a, a lot of people do. And it's interesting because you're kind of describing the process of, of typecasting oneself. Yes. <laughs> you know... Which is horrifying. And yeah. I, it's one of the reasons I think I'm not a successful stage actor in London. <laughs> one of the many reasons. I'm not able to typecast myself. No. I, I, I think other people could do it very easily, but I, I react against that so strongly. I right. get the idea of being put in a box, and I think, but if you gave me the chance, I could yeah. do all of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also, I think that's also a way of sabotaging myself. It's a way of making sure that I never get to try that out I never get to fail at doing all of those things because I make it impossible to ever be cast in any of those roles but what I like about devised work is that you do turn up you, you're probably picked because of a quality that somebody's seen yeah. because of a skill that you have right. or whatever and I, I have a facility with improvising text for example and a certain facility with physical improvisation but it's not, I'm not so strong at that but beyond that it's kind of open yeah. Whatever you do in the rehearsal room, certain bits of it will be will be chosen and put into the final piece. But you go in with the idea that anything could happen from now on. I could end up being almost any any part of this future production which we have in our heads. Right. And I like that. Like that feels very free. Yeah. So for the first few weeks, certainly, it's so exciting because you're just in the space, playing around, producing stuff that may or may not be useful. But you're doing anything other than putting yourself in a box at that point. You're giving the editorial process of that to somebody else. Yes. So you're just throwing out your stuff. Yes. And what, what gets captured will not necessarily be what you think is best. Right. But it also may be stuff that you never would have realised. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely, yes. Yes, that's very much my experience. And so, it will, I mean, it, it depends to a certain extent on on your relationship with the, the dramaturge or the you director. You have to trust the person who is doing that, yeah. Yeah. And it becomes very... I, I think it can be really tough, also psychologically, if you don't trust the person you're working with. Because they will see things in you that they're interested in and they may not be the things that you want to explore or yeah. play with. And that can be very... It can be very difficult. And it can be very frustrating for the dramaturge or, or director if you are not prepared to give 
more of the stuff that they're interested yeah. in. So yeah, you have to have. A, yeah, I think that's right. You have to have a, a good working relationship. I set up a theatre company when I was at university, and one of the show, the kind of final show we did was a, a devised piece that we t- we took it to Edinburgh, and that had sort of three different directors. I was one of those <laughs> people, and I think <laughs> that that, is, that was a mistake. Yeah, I think that was a mistake for sure. I think you need to have like one. I think mm. the, the show we came up with was actually quite good, but the right. uh, the having one person sort of having the overview of what's going on I think yeah. and one kind of aesthetic tone going on is, is quite a quite an important thing and yeah we didn't make our, our lives easy for ourselves no, no. for sure but I think it's interesting to explore all of those things I mean that's one that's one of the things that I think I was doing with with friends in those sort of those years between training and starting to work professionally was how, what does it what happens if we if the four of us like each other and we decide that we're going to come together and start working how does that how does that go right um and i think generally probably what happens in successful companies is that somebody imposes their will on the others right um not necessarily in, in an aggressive not, way but just right. just in the sense that somebody is then the person who makes the final decision yeah and well, it makes it easier for everybody. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, I when I came to London, I mean, here's another failed structure, but when I came to London, I set up a band, a music band that was like 14 people, but it, we tried to run that like wow. a democracy. Yeah. And that was a, a really... I mean, it was, you know, it, it happened for, for about three or four years, and it was a really great uh, collaboration, and I've, I've met some mm. really lasting collaborators through it, but I would never, ever go back and try and right. do something as democratic as that. Like, the thing is, politically, what I want is very different from artistically what works. Like, it, you yes, can't run yes. a, an, an art project like a, like a perfect society. Yeah. Or maybe you can't run a society that way either. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I... <laughs> yeah, I think I've... I came to the conclusion, similarly, that, that you... You can't have a, you can't have a really egalitarian theatre company. Mm. Um, or if you if you do, it, it comes with other compromises. Right. I think that's right. probably the, what what. You yeah, there's to, always a compromise. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. No, I think that's that's probably, that's probably really true. I think, uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting what you were saying about these kind of tryout years that you had. And I, I guess I had I've had similar trying out years, and. It's easy to think of them as failures as, at the time, mm, I think. Yes. But now looking back, I, th- I sort of realised that so much of that was learning. Yes. And, okay, that learning may be... I mean, in my in my case, a lot of that learning is, you know, available to listen to. Uh, right. <laughs> which makes it painful to listen to for me. But at the same time, I think it's really important to make those mistakes. And I think a lot of the time we don't... Like, as audiences, we write write-off artists early on and then actually they turn out to be brilliant I mean mm. I've said this to George on mic so he wouldn't mind me saying it so George who we were talking about the yes. super bard I saw some of his stuff at, at certain points in its development and didn't realize how good it was and then I mm. saw him in Edinburgh and was completely blown away right. and I think that's that's the other thing that when you're developing work it takes a long time to get yes. good and if you see someone it's easy to write them off and then yes. you suddenly see what they were trying to achieve and if they hadn't have failed then they wouldn't have actually got to the point where they succeeded you know they no, wouldn't absolutely. have been to push it to that direction you know I think there's a big pressure to succeed early and to succeed in a very public way early in order to justify your decision to do something like pursue an artistic career right. 
and it, I mean, it's something that I don't think I will ever stop talking to people about. What what does it mean to pursue an artistic career? Yeah. And how important is failure in that? I think right. failure is vital. Right. And it continue, you know, to continuing failure, and how, and then you have to work out how you deal with that. But then you you have to ask yourself, what do you mean by success? Right. I've uh, yeah. And that's not an easy question either. Yeah. But I agree with you absolutely. I think that, well, one of the one of the there were so many good things that Philippe Gaudier said at various points. He's he's I should say he's an extraordinarily good teacher. One of the one of the few people that I've met who is really a teacher, not just somebody who happens to be good at giving workshops ah, or, okay. um, or or teaching their subject. He really is, I think, at a very deep level, somebody who's able to bring people to a point where they can then take charge of their um, their creative selves, if that right. makes sense. And he said, one of the things that he said to us while I was at his school was, don't imagine that you're going to come out of here and be great performers. You will find, hopefully, if you're here for long enough, you will find moments where you are, you are a genius in this school, but you won't be able to replicate that straight away. And give yourselves 10 years right. um, to find your rhythm. Um, and at the end of 10 years, maybe you'll be a good performer uh, and a consistently good performer. Right. Uh, and I think that's that's really good advice because I think that the the feeling I had growing up in this country, in the UK, and with the family that I had and the, the environment that I was living in, you had to be pretty much on track by about the age of 23. Right. A little bit of wiggle room. Right, but basically, right. you came out of university and you need to decide what it is you're going to do and it needs to be something that you're good at. Right. And could do for the rest of your life. But you need to have decided by then, really. Uh, and I remember my father saying to me, it's probably only about 24, 25, I barely finished training. And he said to me, how long do you think you might give this? And I said, um, I don't know. I mean, I'll carry on doing it as long as it, it you know, as long as the pleasure of it outweighs the, the, the distress. <laughs> um and, and I kind of looked at him and said, you know I'm not ever planning to get a desk job, don't you? That, I mean, that's, that's a given in my, kind of in my head. And he was, he was completely taken aback by that. Wow. <laughs> I think he'd assumed in his head that I would give this a go for a couple of years. And if it didn't come to anything, I would, I would go and get a desk job. Right. I would go and get a, what, what people think of as a career. Yeah, and, and that wasn't at all how I was seeing wow. how I would go. And it's funny as well as there's also this idea that failure is somehow like worse than like that's the, mm. that's the thing. I mean, I I I often think, you know, am I going to manage to sustain myself through the creative yes. kind of endeavours that I have in my life? But I couldn't give those things up, and I would be more unhappy if I did than if I yes. failed. Yes. Like I think well, actually, that's, that, essentially that's the question, isn't it? Yeah. In a way, that's the equation that you, you are constantly re, recalculating and right. recalculating, isn't it? Yeah. Um, is this? Yeah. Is there more? Is there more pleasure than pain in this? Yeah. Um, and generally, the answer is yeah. There's more more pleasure. And if there weren't, you would have already given up. I think automatically. I think it would it would have fallen away by itself. Yeah. And the fact that you continue to pursue it means that it's. Um, it's important. Yeah, there's something there at least. I mean, I think that I've. You can have years where there's more p p 
pain than pleasure and you yes. still carry on yes, yes. I mean I think some some artists are unfortunately a little bit too in love with the idea of being the pain tortured artist and I, I absolutely think it's important to remember the joy that it brings mm. and also the, the mundaneness of being an artist as well I think there's, yeah, there's, there's a bit too much right. elevation yes. but at the same time many artists are tortured and 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 yes. still make good work and they yes. can't not make that work that's the thing no and they might be terrible as well they well, might be terrible the all thing. their lives yeah, and yes yet still they have to you know that's yes. what i think i think you know you, you're an artist if you can't not do it that's my right. my view and whether you're a good one or not that's that's, well, that's a, by the by yeah. and maybe there's some people who who can give it up take it or leave it who are mm-hmm. brilliant I've yeah. certainly met yeah. those people, yeah. so it's, and I wouldn't necessarily want to say they're not artists. So maybe no. I should reevaluate my own statement. Yeah. No, well, I think it's a very. I think all those questions are really hard. I don't know what it means to be a good artist. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about this. I think about it a lot. Where when I when you know whenever I'm thinking about me as a writer, because that's the kind of probably the second thing that I wanted to be really. I wanted to be a performer, and then I wanted to be a writer. Right. Um, because I love reading, and I think I I've always wanted to. I think the thing is when it, what it comes down to it, in a very hubristic way. I've always wanted to give the pleasure that I've received, right? Um, and I and I, uh, the amount of pleasure that I've got from reading uh, other people's writing is so huge. Yeah, that I, I love the idea of being able to create that in somebody else. Yeah. but I am I am very much not a success as a writer. I've you know very, it's very. I've written very little that I consider to be even finished in you know in, in the fifteen or twenty years that I've been actively writing things. And, and sometimes I think, well, what does it mean? You know, if I if I came to the end of my life and I'd written one thing that I considered to be really very very good, that would probably be okay. <laughs> the fact is, at the moment, I haven't. Right. So it's very you know I think, well, what if I came to the end of my life and I hadn't written anything right. that I considered to be really very very yeah, good? Yeah. That. I think that has to be okay as well. That's where I am. That's where I am at the mo- at the moment. I think I have to make my peace with that. What if I am a bad artist? That still has to be okay. I still have to be able to live with that. It can't rely on some future uncertain payoff. Right. Um, right. Being an artist is not about. It's is not just about producing something that sells millions of copies or touches hundreds of thousands of people's lives. Yeah, but it's a, I, I don't. I mean, still in the middle of this. Question. I mean, are, are you a process person or a product? No, person? I'm. A, I am a product person. Me too. That makes it harder. Right. Uh, I love. I love process, I, and I love talking to people who right, are process people. Me too. But process, for its own sake, frustrates me. Right. Process is important, and yes. I and I've come Hugely to learn important. it's more important than when I started out. And yes. people have taught me that through my collaborations with them. But some of the people who I've collaborated with have been process people yes. rather than product people. Yes. And that is, I find that a frustrating thing as well because I'm like, well, we've, we've got to make the thing and, and then, <laughs> then, then show it to people. Right, and so like, you have to no, have you no. can point to right. it. But I've, what I've realised uh, very much, like what you were saying about the failures being learning experience, a lot of what I've considered to be product in the past I now look on as process. Me too. So Me too. I, I don't think so. Maybe the process gets either. you there in the end, whatever. Yeah. Right. I'm just yeah. Maybe my process just has to have a lot more public humiliation involved. Than <laughs> well, I, th- I mean, my my view of art is very much that it is a conversation. Right. Um, if I'm not communicating, then then 
then I don't think I'm doing anything. Right. And that's, that's really my problem with the writing side of what I do because very few people read what I write. And so that is something that I have to think about. Right. Um, who am I communicating with? Yeah. Uh, at least when I'm performing, I know that there are people in the room. Yeah. And really, except if I'm in Edinburgh. Um, <laughs> so there's a sort of, that justifies itself. Yeah, and that's, uh, that, uh, that's something that I am... That's something that I'm re... Uh, kind of re, re... What's the word I'm looking for? I'm, I'm coming back to it at the moment and, and looking at that again. You know, how, my, how many people... <laughs> how many people justify what I'm doing? Right. Um, how many people need to see this or, or, or experience it? I well, don't know. I know, that's a hard one. And I think, I think about that a lot myself. I mean... Uh, you make podcasts yeah. as well, and I think one of the things that attracts artists to podcasts is that that's in a way of extending the reach of our audiences. Yes, yes, and sort of maximising the the possibility that people will hear the work. Yes, and yeah, I mean, I think although it relies on people actually listening, listening. I know, yeah, <laughs> it's the same thing in that. Which which depends on people being interested. Yeah. And I'm totally okay with people not being interested. Well, that's right. And what, what podcasting does, I think, is it means you can find a niche audience. That might be a big niche audience, but yes. you can be very specific and you can find the audience that is into that. Yes. And the question comes, if you have X amount of people who love your podcast every week, isn't that enough? Right. Um, right. And I think it might be. I think that's where I'm starting to get to. I think yeah. I don't want necessarily the big audience that I thought I wanted I think I want a dedicated and interesting audience that gets something mm. out of my work and I don't really mind if that's a large amount of people or a small amount of people I just yes. know I don't want it to be no people yes, yes. <laughs> well that's the worst thing exactly well and then you probably do have to ask yourself because all of these questions I think can be ways of running away from uh, the big question of whether or not you're any good which is the question I started with at the age of about four or five which I think you have to you have to ask yourself continually is this any good and I don't mean because like you say you can be a bad artist forever and that's absolutely fine but I think if you are not producing good stuff I think what that mean for me at the moment what that means is you're not you're not really engaging with with the stories that you are needing to tell because I, I perhaps idealistically I think that when you do when when that does align what you produce is good in some right. way it may not appeal to everybody but it will have a quality that is worthwhile that is art that is artistic um, and I think when it's bad um, that, I think that's often just because you, aren't, you haven't found your way of getting that out yet or you haven't found right. what it is that you're trying to get out right. um, or you're scared of it or, or it's a communication failure rather right. than an exactly. artistic failure exactly like you're not communicating the message you have to to, to yes. communicate yes. i've definitely found that as well like that's kind of what i was getting at earlier on about seeing work and it's not good and then seeing it again and it is good is that i think that's one of the things that that i've I used to sort of think, oh yeah, I can give people loads of notes and and, and 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 convince them to do it the way they should do it, and I still do that. I mean, that that's just something I like to do. But but what I've come to realise is a lot of the time, it's not about them changing it to fit what you want. It's about them finding a way of expressing what they were trying to say in a way that actually communicates it. Yes. Yeah, I mean, my friend always says, you, you might have two people. One p person might say, you need to build a bridge. The other one might say, you need to build a tunnel. But what you really learn is that there's a river. 
Right. That's <laughs> and, nice. I like that. And I think that's yes. a great yes. way of thinking yes. of it. And then that's yes. the thing is, is like there's a problem in the communication. So yes. I can I can choose different ways to, yes. to solve that yes. problem. Yes. But, but the problem is it's not being communicated properly. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that's something um, when you are producing work, it's really important to find somebody who can who can give you feedback in a way that is useful. Because I think a lot of people will try to give you solutions Right. Uh, rather than just telling you where, where they see the problems. And actually, what you need most of the time is for people just to point out where there's a problem. And then you can maybe brainstorm yeah. some solutions together, but their solutions won't be your solutions. Right. Um, and I think it can be really difficult when people come. I mean, it's something that I find with Samantha a lot, and I I think I'm a... With, with all of the uh, playing around that I've done behind me, um, I'm in a stronger position. When people come up to me and say, oh, I think you should do this with Samantha... It's almost always something that I can't imagine doing or don't want to do or have no intention of doing. Right. And it's lovely that they're engaging yeah. with the work. And I think it's very exciting that people have ideas and that they have, you know, yeah. they are, I'm stimulating people's imagination in that way. But I'm often amazed at how wrong people, in my opinion, how wrong people get it. It's not useful necessarily from my point of view if somebody comes up and says, oh, I think Samantha should do this. Uh, but But as you say, sometimes it's, it's useful for me to go, ah, I wonder what they're responding to that makes them think that yes. she should do this. Yes. And that can be a very interesting question. Interesting. So who is Samantha? Who? Yes. What do you mean by that question? Well, take it however you want. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question because that's actually what I've been doing um, uh, over Christmas and a little bit into the new year I was uh, having some conversations with a guy I met in Edinburgh, Jack Talbot, who's... Um, he was he was superb and so helpful. He he said we need to do some branding with you on Samantha. He was he was performing in my venue, and he said really your biggest problem at this stage is that you are not marketing her very well. Uh, and we had conversations more or less uh, more or less the point we were trying to get to is yeah who is Samantha what is what is this? How what do you get people to this? come and see the Samantha so that they'll realise? Yes. Well, yes. The point. Yes. The thing, the thing is, how do you communicate what it, it is that you're doing it's so a that tough people who sell, will right? like it yeah. know about it because and will understand what it is? Because, like, like there are words that you could throw around Samantha that I don't necessarily like to throw mm-hmm. around. For example, somebody could call Samantha a drag act. Right. I don't think that Samantha no. is a drag act, and I don't either. I mean, that's. Yes, I mean drag. That's a very that's a very convenient shorthand for um, somebody of one obvious gender wearing the trappings of another, another obvious one, gender. Yeah. Um, uh, but but actually, I think drag is something quite specific. Yeah. Um, which so I I don't belong to that tradition in, when no. I'm doing Samantha, and I and I think it's a great tradition. I don't know enough about it, uh, but I think it has its own function and its own um, forms. What I'm doing is character that's, comedy. I'm glad you said that because um, that's how I always describe mm, it. I think it's a yeah. character piece. Yes. Very well observed. Like one of the things I like about watching you do, Samantha, is that you have the mannerisms so naturally down and there's a lot of improvisation that you put in mm. around it. Yes. And that feel it feels very real. Like you're aware when you're watching that, you know, that's a a guy that's yeah. performing yeah. that. But at the same time, you really forget that completely. And I don't yeah. think you're supposed to forget that at all in drag. No, and no, that's, absolutely, that's the, absolutely. That's the, that's the difference. I think that's way. very much... The, yeah, I think that's a good... I think you put your finger on a very important difference. Yeah, because I think drag is about highlighting gender and the differences in gender and sexuality as well, I think, comes into it. Um, 
and I think character is very much about a person or a personality. Mm. I see it very much like puppetry, that um, in some forms of puppetry, you stop seeing the puppeteer, and I see, I, 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 that's how I see some right. of So I don't, I don't feel like I need to make a big effort to disguise myself. Yeah, that's right, because you don't really, like, it's not like you put, like, like no. really, like, designed to make you look like you're a woman no. costume, but you also aren't uh, wearing a costume that's designed to sort of um, highlight the fact no. that you're not a woman. I think that's I like, I hope that it's just enough that yeah. people can then... I mean, this is another thing that I think comes from Gordy, <coughs> actually, um, the idea that you give the audience room to dream, uh, and that's I think that's really important. When I first started making work uh, with friends, I think we tried to do too much a lot of the time, and there was no space. Right. For, I mean, there was no... We were in movement all the time for a start. I think it was exhausting to watch. Um, but also you want to tell everyone everything, and I think that's something that... Uh, it becomes much more interesting when you don't and yeah. people you give them enough you give them yeah. enough that they can then construct their, their own, own meaning from it right? yeah their own fantasy of what is happening and who this person is and so I think the co- the costume is part of that I mean a lot of it's accidental I, it, it's something that came about because um, I, you know I, I had a wig already and I and those those were the clothes that I found one Monday or one Sunday I can't remember which day I went to the flea market in Paris um and and it seemed to work and people responded but that's how i tend to work yeah i do something and if people respond then it's okay i, I don't construct something in advance in my head okay. and then put it together so when when samantha was born was when you threw those uh pieces of costume on and yeah. what stood up and, and yes the first it. day i stood up as samantha was not great i remember um the voice was bad and nothing nothing happened and you can feel that in the room no one is responding to this character and then I remember I mean there is a day when she was born and I can't remember the date anymore it's like the 19th of February or something it was 10 years ago which is why I've been looking it up and now I've forgotten it again but I remember there was a particular exercise where I came out as Samantha and something to do with the voice and the rhythm created the character um, and uh, and so it's been a process of, of almost working backwards to say, okay, given that, given that you have this thing which which creates an image in people's minds, what is that? Yeah. Um, and so over the last three, four years, I've been performing her in London and starting to ask myself, okay, so what is her family? How old right. is she? Okay. Um, yeah. What is you know where did she go to school? And those those questions don't always have answers, but sometimes the answers can be can be useful. Yeah, I'm now pretty sure she's a civil service librarian working three days a week, probably at MI5 or somewhere that she considers to be frightfully secret. Interesting. Um, <laughs> that's really an excuse for me not to have to talk about where her she works. work. <laughs> yes, because yeah. I don't think it's the most interesting certainly, part of her. Yeah, certainly not. Um, so I describe her as a. This is this is the result of the branding exercise was that I describe her as a well-meaning spinster librarian, which I think is. I'm surprised at how good those words feel to me. They they feel open enough and yet descriptive enough. Yeah. So my problem has always been how do I describe her without, without closing down. And diminishing her, right? Yes. Because she's exactly. got this kind of... Um, I mean, one of the things that makes her an amazing... Uh, like a powerful character, I think, is that she's got this kind of inner humanity that uh-huh. you kind of relate to. And, you know, if you put her into too many boxes, you sort of, like, yes. diminish that. Yes. I mean, I guess the word spinster is important in relation to her. It's a complicated word, though. I think... Well, the reason I like it so much is that I think it does come with this slightly old-fashioned... 
atmosphere, which is one of the things that Samantha has, I think. Right, and, and she it's, does. It's complicated because she's not quite in her time. She's not that old, but she people think of her as an old person, but I think she has an old feeling about her. Right, she she's does. She's a bit right. old-fashioned. Yeah. And, and Spinster has that feeling. Yeah, right. I mean, she is single, and... She's not likely ever to be in a relationship. And again, spinster also has that yes. feeling about there's There's something very final about being a spinster. Yeah. Um, even though technically it's just the name for somebody who is not married yet. Yeah. And, and also, like, uh, it comes from a time when the idea that, that we got married was the be-all and end-all of, right. of everything, yes. right? So. Which is also a theme that I'm exploring in, in what I'm doing at the moment, I think, in... in what does it mean to be... I mean, in my show, um, which you haven't seen... No, I haven't. Uh, the theme is really loneliness. How do we deal with being on our own? So many people are on their own. And I mean, it's a big theme in my life. Right. And what does that mean? You know, how does loneliness interact with being alone? Right. And how do we fit into society's expectations? Um, but all of that is... I mean, the, the, I haven't seen the whole show, but mm. every, everything I've seen with Samantha in... Has, has 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 had a deep vein of of of, of loneliness and right. and wanting to this this longing to fit in yes uh, that I've yeah. I've I've really responded to because I kind of relate to those kind of emotions and it's also what made me realise that Samantha would most certainly fit into stand up tragedy <laughs> right. because I mean initially she seems so positive a character so yes. happy and not ha- not happy is the wrong word but mm. she makes you feel Cheerful. happy I feel like I find that, that that when Samantha is speaking it just fills me with joy but then after a moment that joy is tinged with these sort of strange <laughs> colors because you realize well I'm loving hearing this yeah. character but the character isn't necessarily happy within the center of that right know? that's what George said actually it's pretty much the same thing and it's been interesting for me to navigate because I I've been a bit nervous of, of saying Samantha is a comedy thing, it's right. a character comedy. And I and this year I'm I'm in the comedy section of the Edinburgh programme, for example, and that's that was for me a big decision because I think, oh, that comes with all kinds of expectations of making people laugh. Right. And that's that's because I don't want to write jokes and I don't want to <laughs> uh, I don't want that pressure of feeling like it's a failure if people don't laugh because I think there are other things that But with it being character comedy, I think that that softens the comedy a little it does, bit. It does, it does. It yeah. kind of gives me a little bit of a cut out. But at the same time, actually, I've realised this year I have to grow up a bit and realise that what I'm doing is comedy. Is that comedy. is what I want to do. It and so comedy. if it's not funny enough, I have to find ways of making it funny. I but do uh, actually have to give right. myself that task, I think. But jokes don't, isn't, jokes aren't the only way no, to no, make comedy. That's, right. I mean, that's, that's what, I mean, what, what, what's funny about Samantha is the familiarity yeah. of, like, the actions that she's doing, the repetitions... Like okay. you know, I mean the yes. the the difference between her like what she says and what we realise the situation to be. That's a funny. Right. Th- that can be right. a funny thing. And awkwardness is my maybe my favourite kind of comedy. So right. I, I dig that about her. But that's you see that's interesting because one of the things that uh, that's so it's such a clear part of what I'm doing. Obviously, I'm expressing my awkwardness through Samantha, and that's always been a big part of her character but I'm aware that if I don't frame it right there are people in the audience who will just feel awkward and that's not what I want because then they are and I see this very clearly in Edinburgh because there are often very few people in the room um, right. those people who are not who are not relaxed stand out much more and they sometimes have a horrible time right and and that, and I and so I realize that I have to 
I have to temper all of this. I have to temper the tragedy a little bit, and I have to temper the awkwardness in yeah. order to make it something that people can see without having to experience it, or if they are experiencing it, to 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 be able to to be able to take it. Because uh, I think for some people it resonates a little too much. Yeah, yeah. And I get that. I yeah. understand that. It that does resonate. Sense. I can imagine. Yeah, mm. there are definitely people in my life actually. I think that would find it Samantha a little bit too close to the bone. Right. Which is very interesting though, because there's other people who would never be able to. Well, they would be able to conceive of this, but they would find it really hard to imagine that anyone would find Samantha yes. problematic, like yes, yes, troubling. Yes, yes. Like, because there there are this the, the variety of different kind of, yes, of levels of response to Samantha and I know yeah. lots of people who might you know find her very cuddly and not realize oh, yeah. that someone could yeah. be traumatized by it yeah, yeah definitely definitely but it is I thought it's an interesting it's been a really interesting process from that point of view because I do want to I do want to talk about stuff that is important to me but but I at the same time I think I want to be aware of how people are I'm not interested in giving people a, a hard time I'm not I, I want the audience to have fun that's right. really the most important thing for me yeah um, that I want to entertain people for an hour yeah uh, and, and that's I'm actually a, 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 that's one of the things I respond to in your work although I don't necessarily think it's something I aspire to all the right. time yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm dead I am into entertaining people but yes. I'm also into destabilizing them and confusing right. them and things like this and, and making them feel new things, which I think you're you're probably into that too. But that, that I, yeah, mean as a that, sort of secondary thing, right? Yes, yeah. And and but 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 what I like is that it's actually quite rare to find somebody who says I want to entertain people right. for an hour. Everybody's yeah. got these kind of different what they consider to be more high-minded ideals. But actually, I don't think they are more high-minded than trying to entertain someone for an hour because that's a really hard task to to sort of yeah, make something that's very that hard. It's very hard, and I think it's it's. Um, from my point of view, it's just it, it's if I could if I could entertain people for now, that's just canny. I mean, the best way right, to talk true. to people is to keep them entertained. Yeah, uh, I, I think you can't have a conversation with someone who's not listening to that's you. That's right, exactly, exactly. So that, I suppose that's where I come from. That's the first. That's like the first thing to do is to make sure that they are entertained. That's not necessarily how I construct what I'm doing, unfortunately. But that is, you know, that's, I, I, that's where I'm trying to arrive at is that they will be entertained. And then, hopefully, there will be other things that they will have the chance to see or not to see, as you know, depending on where they are in their lives and what they're interested in. That's you know, I, I acknowledge that people will see different things. Yeah, and that's fascinating mm. when you when you create work and then three different people have yeah. the opposite opinions about what it's about. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. that's, there's a lot of joy to be found in that, I find. Yes. Which is funny, because I think sometimes people are suspicious of that. They get, yeah. like, they're like, hang on, this was my meaning. They get yes. precious about yes. that. Yes, yes. This is my meaning, and they've got the wrong idea. And But actually, that's that's great. I love that stuff. Yeah. I, I, w- I was very influenced by an essay I was told to read when I was at university called The Intentional Fallacy by Theodore W. Adorno, I think his name is. And he, he writes that we shouldn't even ask ourselves what the artist intended that's nonsense right we need to respond to texts he's talking about texts particularly as they are uh, and it doesn't it shouldn't make any difference whether or not the author intended us to think about tuberculosis or melancholia or whatever it might be underneath yeah we have to take it as it is and and, and see what we build from it and I, and I think there's they're, they're probably very good counter arguments yeah but there always are with these things but they're, they're still are. useful and very interesting kind of ways of thinking about but, but I, I like the idea that my intention is is not 
is not the only thing that matters. Right. It's useful if the intention is clear when you're creating something. I've done things where I've just gone, I think this is fun, I'm going to do that, let's see what people think. And I think that ends up often being less clear and people find it difficult to respond to it because there is nothing at the heart of it. And I think if there is something down there, that's great, but it won't necessarily be what's communicated. Right. Also because if you come and see me do something, you're not living my life. No. And, you, and there I'm will be things in your life. Exactly. To it. Right. I think that's really, I think in terms of, I think we have to keep making an effort to be modest as artists as well. I think that's important. Yeah. And not, not, I just, I think it's unbearable when people uh, insist that this is what something means. Right. It turns me off. I think, well, then I, I don't see why I, as audience, I've already paid my money. I don't if know you why I have to make an right. effort to understand what it is that you are trying to communicate. Right. I will respond. That's what I'm here for. Although, at the same time, do you find it interesting when you hear interviews with people that you admire talking about what they intended to, to yes, do with the Yes, sometimes, yes. But not always, but sometimes. But yeah. that, and that's different, though, from yes. them insisting. Absolutely. I think that's the, that's yeah. the difference I find. Yeah, very yeah. much, very much. And I, No, I think, I, I think, well, it's a bit, very much like if something new happens in your life, you will come to a piece of work. Uh, with different eyes, I think that's it's just another thing to feed in. It's say, another. Oh, that's where right. they were coming from. Well, that's I mean, that's a very kind of like the the death of the author, the, the tissue mm. of quotations, Ronan Bart and Foucault and all that stuff. Like, oh, yeah, that we bring. I've never read, but yes, right. Mm. The text becomes like the the again. It's a similar thing that the the author its intention is irrelevant. They they mm. actually only become significant in terms of how they relate to the text. So okay. you, you might. So their names above it. So that's yes. some meaning that you're going to get from right, that. And right. so you, if you know stuff about their life, you might put that yes. onto the work. Yes. But th yes. there's also which is something that I do do regularly. <clears throat> yeah. And but then there's this. Fun. Th you know, you're sat in a coffee shop, and the sounds in that coffee shop are influencing how yeah. you're reading that yes. text. Yes. You know, there's so many, so many, yeah. and that's 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 the idea that the text is created from this. T tissue of quotations from all of the other people who've written all of the books right, that have influenced right. the person who's writing that so that is it, we're, is it's, it a post, it's basically postmodernism came from that okay that, 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 that those set of analysts but it doesn't necessarily have to be the end conclusion no, no, that we come, course, come from yeah. but I think I have come across uh, some of the idea that and this might be something that I've read in Borges or somewhere um the idea that if you are actually going to understand an author, you probably do need to read all of the things that they've read. Uh, in fact, maybe that is, maybe that's in that story. I gave somebody a collection of short stories, Borges short stories, and I was reading the first page of, um, I can't remember the name of it. It's a guy, it's about this guy who's rewriting Don Quixote by Cervantes. It's, I think it's a wonderful story. Um, and I think he might go about reading everything that Cervantes, Cervantes read right. so that he can then write oh, wow. Don Quixote and he's not copying Don Quixote he's really writing right. but I, th there is that idea isn't there that if you're going to really analyse in the way that people you know some some critics have come to to authors and said okay let's take what we know of Shakespeare and, and reanalyse his plays well you have to you have to read what he read yeah. before you can start to understand how and he then used everybody, the water. yeah but then everybody that he read as well has like all of the people right. that they read and not just the it's people kind of they read the lives task. they lived yes. and the people yes. they met and the conversations they had and you know, I, also, I think that's I what makes the art other thing so is I don't so first of all I like the fact that that's impossible so you can't do it it's a really interesting avenue to explore but it's never going to be the be all and end all because it's impossible and secondly it's impossible to go by what the author intends because they won't know 
everything that they were no. thinking. They won't remember. No. Um, there's no way. I think it. I think it can be really great to unlock something. If if, and I do find this often with visual art because I'm not very good at responding to visual art, and I blame my education for this. <laughs> I always want to find meaning in it. I try to resist that. But I do find sometimes when I, when I hear an artist talking about where they were coming from when they were creating something, it can unlock whole, yeah. you know, right. rooms full of information. But again, it's never going to be the whole story. No. No, no, no. And that's I think that's great. Yeah, right. That's what's great. It's wonderful to know that, that nothing nothing is the whole answer. I, right. I mean, I really, right. this is a fundamental really agree with you part of my philosophy, I think, that... Uh, the uncertainty is essential you, uh, you always, and I think this is my this would be a big part of my uh, political beliefs as well you, you have to keep saying to yourself but we don't know um, this this might be right yeah but we can't know we, yeah. we can we can we can sponsor that for a while and see where it goes and, and really commit to it as long as we know that we don't know and that that seems and, and that seems very problematic to a lot of people because I think there are a lot of people who want to feel like they know, right? Want to feel like this answer is definitive. But I mean, they know. Nobody, the 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 whoever it is who meets and decides what's going to happen to the interest rates has no idea. I mean, really, no idea what will happen in the wider world when they change right. the interest rates by 0.5 percent. Okay, yeah. They have they have precedents, but nobody knows what people are actually going to go out and do tomorrow. Right. And I think that's wonderful. Right. Okay. I I love that idea. Yeah, I love the idea that, that nothing is certain in a way, but at the same time, I think we, in in art, I find it joyous. Yeah. In uh, in in politics, less so maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you want certainties. I'd like, yeah. I think, I want certainties for myself, but I'm quite a privileged individual, so I don't have to really worry about the the, the sort of area that uncertainties will fall for me right. are is is not that that dangerous but i think i want some certainties for the people who aren't privileged i want there to be a basic certainty that human beings get kind of treat each other as decently as possible right and yeah. that isn't something that's certain at all no, um so yeah. some people get that and some people don't uh, and that's that that's harder for me to Yes. To, 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 to enjoy the randomness yeah, and no, chaos. I Although I, I love that yeah, in yes. art. Yeah. Love it in art. I, I suppose I don't, I don't mean that I always enjoy it, but I think it's, I feel like it's important to acknowledge it. I think that whenever, uh, and I don't, I don't feel very qualified to talk about politics because I, I, I think, I mean, I'm also feel very privileged in terms of my uh, socioeconomic situation um, and I'm not knowledgeable enough. But I do, I do think when I read the way that people talk about making policy... So, for example, you have, a, you have a, the problem that you're faced with as a conservative minister is that people have the impression that too many people are claiming benefits that they are not entitled to. And my point of view is that all of those things are uncertain. None of those things are facts. I mean, there are, of course, people who will claim benefits that they're not entitled to, in the same way that there are people who will not claim benefits that they are entitled right, to. Exactly right, exactly. Um, and yeah. so there is no, there's no, there's no clear situation. You can't put a line anywhere on the map and say this side of the line are people who who are deserving, and this side of the line are people who are not deserving. Right. Wherever you put that line, there will be this vast area 
in the middle. Agreed, yeah. People on both sides who, who shouldn't be in that category. Yeah. I think you just have to accept that. Yeah, so I'm getting political without perhaps meaning to. But I remember having an argument with um, a guy when I was sharing a flat a few years ago with uh, a guy who used to, he used to bring back guys regularly. One of the people he brought back was an American. So we, for some reason we found ourselves... I mean, I'd just gone into the kitchen to say hi. I didn't particularly want to get to know any of these people that my flatmate brought back because I knew they were... <laughs> weren't going to become part of my life. But we very quickly got onto the topic of the welfare state and the way that Europe views the, the responsibilities of the state. And he's absolutely adamant that people should look after themselves um, and that it's a, it's a bad thing for the state to provide any assistance at all right. because it encourages people to become lazy. And, right. my, and my response to him and my feeling still now is that I would prefer a system in which some people abused the benefits that they get, if that makes sense, yeah. than a system in which people who who should be helped don't get helped. And Me I think too. that's the choice yeah, that you right. have. And that's, and that's what you mean about... Yeah, I, I, I see what you mean, actually. When people are so certain, yes. they don't say, well, we'll just cut, cut our losses and go, yes. well, that's bet, the best of a bad situation. Right, exactly. Right? exactly. Everyone thinks there's, not a, th- th- there's okay. a possibility to not have a bad situation. That's right, right. Which, I think is, which I think is nonsense. And I, and I think these things have to be continually reassessed. Right. Because I, don't think this, I also don't think there's a solution that stays the best solution for, for very right. long. I mean, I, you know, I, I, was a, I was a volunteer for a charity for a while, uh, Victim Support, which is, uh, does wonderful, wonderful work. It was wonderful to see what they do and what they offer. Uh, it was really, you know, in a way, the best of the, the big society, but horrific that, in a way, that they were doing what I think other organisations should be doing, and there right. should be money from the state right. to provide the kind of services that victim support was providing. Right. It was mostly funded by the state, but I think they shouldn't have had to fight so hard for that right. funding. Um, but having said that, there were, of course, people that I called who I felt were taking the piss. You know, they'd experienced something which I've never experienced, like a burglary, for example, so I can't know what that's like. And I can't, even if I had experienced that, I can't know what that's like for them. But listening to them talking about it, I could get a sense maybe that this person is not particularly bothered right. by what happened, and yet they want me to write to the council to get them a bigger house. Right. And I think, nah, okay, there's a problem here, <laughs> which is that I'm not here to provide you with a bigger house, right. um, and neither is the council. Uh, in this situation, and and these these perhaps are the people, and there and there are not that many of them, but those are the people who, of course, provide the statistics that enrage Middle England. Well, it's not even that they provide the statistics so much as they provide the anecdotes. That's that's per- it. That's, that's, a that's a it, way isn't of putting it? Because whenever anyone talks about any of these areas, they talk about some. They go, we we have to have some human examples, and that's they give right. you some anecdotes, but they don't that's really tell you about all of the people who aren't anecdote worthy. No, right. Well, and plus, most I of mean, us aren't. We're just those, living our those lives. Those people might be people that I don't particularly like, having spoken to them for five minutes, um, and they're in this situation where they don't have enough money to pay their rent, and there are people who are very similar to those people who do happen to have enough money to pay their rent so they're never going to be in that situation so they can say what they like about who should receive benefits and who shouldn't receive benefits and there are other anecdotes there you know there was a woman I met who wasn't given housing for years and was blacklisted because she continued to stay in the house that her parents had moved out of and the reason she continued to stay in that house was because she was only a teenager and her parents had refused to give her space in their house what's she supposed to do? yeah well, this is a problem a and lot she of people was, have. And she yeah. ended up in a, in a rough hostel with people who, for reasons I won't go into, she should never have been living right. with. Right. 
and and so you've you've got all of those situations yeah. going on and i say i would rather a situation that bleeds a little bit into helping her yes. at the expense of giving somebody who doesn't need it a bigger right. house sometimes than making sure that all of those families who don't need the bigger house yeah. don't get one right right and then not help not help the other no i fully agree on on the, on the interesting that we came from Yes, uh, I don't there. No, but it's, that's, that's, that's how conversations work. You never know where you're going to end <laughs> up. So I should be wrapping up around about now, I think. Yeah. So the last question that I ask people is, do you have anything to plug? So I guess we've, we, should, we should definitely go back over the stuff we've discussed and make sure people know where to find that stuff. But you well, might have other things to all of my, like My main website is charlesadrian.com and everything links from there. So I would plug my podcast, page one. Yeah. So so one day I'll be on that, but not today. <laughs> I'm ho- I'm still hoping that magically it might have recorded, um, and yeah. I and I'm You're never aware know. of it. But I I think there's not much hope there. <laughs> but yeah, so page one is my podcast. So if if anyone looks up page one podcast on Google, you find it. And then the official website for Samantha is Miss Samantha Man with two ends dot com. Yeah. Um, page one. We didn't kind of explain what that podcast is. Oh, that's right. We didn't. It's um. It's a weekly podcast which you can listen to online or download through iTunes. Where basically, I most of the time I'm meeting guests and we read the first page of books and talk about them. Yeah, it seems strange for you to explain it to me because I've already done it today. <laughs> but just in <laughs> case people didn't know, but yeah, it's yes. it, and it's and it's and it sort of speaks to a lot of like what the sort of which we touched on in the conversation that you are interested in words and writing and, yes, and how that works yeah. and you've got a kind of passion for for books that yes. I mean having been through the experience I'm looking forward to going through it again yeah, but, yeah. It, but it was it's a, it's I'm a, looking forward to a nice thing to be it's, I think to, it's also if you're interested in books it's yeah. a different way of doing what you're doing with this podcast right finding um, out stuff about I mean I, it's not yeah. as it's not as in depth and it's not as direct but it's an excuse to have a conversation with somebody about right. stuff that they like Right. Uh, and that's why I enjoy doing it, I think. Yeah. People and talking about what they like is always a lovely thing to hear, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, I mean, that's why I love Desert Island Discs and, yes. and, and stuff like that. It's the same. It's exactly the same idea, but uh, with books rather yeah. than music. Or Which is great. more books than music. Yeah. But yes, it's always... It's, I think it's... Uh, yeah. And, some, and Samantha Man as well, you've sort of been doing some podcasty stuff with yes, her? Yes. Uh, there are some audio letters <laughs> again I've taken that from from um, Alistair Cook's letters from America <laughs> yeah he does letters from London um, I haven't done one for ages actually I need to do another one uh, yes you can find those on SoundCloud she's again Ms. Samantha Man on SoundCloud but all those I mean the thing is it depends how how tenacious you are you can find all those links from charlesadrian.com if you look around excellent that's my hub I mean and I feel like it, I always find this with with the show that I want to have the plugs question because I want to get people to tell me what they're like what they're doing but then very early on some people interpreted this plug uh, idea as like giving up their opinion about like ideas or thoughts about the world and now I sort of feel like if I don't tell everybody that then nobody's getting the same opportunity so you're perfectly uh, within your rights to say no I haven't got anything to plug in that kind of way oh I see but is there sort of anything that you would like to plug that's a little less about what what you do yourself like promote or an idea or whatever oh goodness it's that's, a, that's very a, idealistic bit, isn't it I know and it's a bit of a like, pressure as well as no but it's beautiful I wish you'd warned me I, um, <laughs> I would seem less um, 
perhaps self-obsessed at this point. <laughs> no, no, no. You don't. You don't look self-obsessed because <laughs> you're, 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 you're um, uh, although responding I am, I am to the proudly question. I, I, I acknowledge that I am self-obsessed. Um, well, I would. I would love to. No, the person I would like to promote is Vera Chok, who is, um, uh, who I don't talk about enough. Who's enormously important for my life and work in London. Yeah, you collaborate um, a lot with. I collaborate with, Vera. with her a certain amount, and she is an extraordinary. I mean, she's a great performer. And uh, she's a bit overblessed, really, because she's also a, a stunning producer. And one of the things that I admire about her is her ability to be interested in people and to find things that she's interested in and put them together with other things. She's very good at introducing people to people and remembering who has done what and why. Yeah. Um, but she's also just, in, just uh, well, she's uh, she's a good friend of mine. But she's 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 very interesting and interested. And I think that's so important and very generous, which is also rare in the art world. So I would like to plug Vera Chok. Cool. You can go to verachok.com to <laughs> <laughs> find out about her. That's, yeah, that's interesting because I've never met Vera, but I've had like email conversations with her and text right. and, and, uh, tweet conversations with her, but I've yes. never met her yet. So I'm interested to meet her someday she's soon. Another, she's another of these hubs. She links lots and lots of interesting people. Yeah. So it's well worth keeping in touch with well, her and getting to know Being her. a hub is something I quite aspire to being myself. It's really I'm, hard work. I'm when I look at what, l- what it entails... Yeah, yeah, no, I... Um, it's hard work, it's exhausting. Yeah, but I mean, I, I, I do like when you find two people who right. don't know each other that yeah. could... I, I do like doing that. I do like sort of hooking people up and putting them together. Mm. Um, but, yeah. I think it's a wonderful thing, and I think those, those people are very important. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I, I know I know a fair few myself, and they're they're essential to all of the rest. The thing about the arts is we're all a lot of us are very kind of socially awkward and yeah, uh, introverted, and so like we need people to help us to communicate with each other. Yeah? Yes, yeah. and yeah. So that's that's a, that's a lovely plug, I thought. And uh, um, yeah, I I kind of I like not warning people because I like seeing them <laughs> seeing react. What comes out. Yeah. yeah, I understand that technique. But. Uh, very well. <laughs> and, and it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you it's today. Wonderful. Thank you so much for doing. It. I feel like the afternoon has been entirely saved by this. <laughs> That's great. It's been such a pleasure to have the chance just to talk about myself, Dave. Thank you so well, much. My pleasure. <laughs> I, I like giving people the opportunity. It's, wonder- to no, it's been wonderful also to spend the afternoon with you and getting to know you a little bit. Yeah. Thank you. That's a, a mutual feeling. And the the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. A couple of additional plugs. I'm going to be coming out on Adrian's podcast very soon, pretty much the week that this comes out. His podcast is called Page One, as we previously mentioned, so have a listen to me over there and check out his podcast generally. Also, Stand Up Tragedy, which we vaguely touch on during the episode, which is a variety night that I run which focuses on tragedy so if you come to a stand-up tragedy night you're going to experience lots of different emotions you're going to laugh you're going to cry you're going to have all the range of emotions but the focus is on the sadder things in life the things that we don't come together collectively to explore as often as the hilarious things in life so that's what stand-up tragedy is the next show is on the 12th of june at the Dog Star in Brixton. 
that is themed around the idea of Greek tragedy, so we're going back to our tragic roots for this one. And we've just launched an Indiegogo campaign to try and raise funds to take our show up to the Edinburgh Festival. We're going up as part of the Free Fringe. We desperately need money, though, to pay for our accommodation and all sorts of other elements that are involved in taking something up to the Edinburgh Festival. Listeners to this show will know that I've recently gone freelance, so this year I really need your help to fund the project because I can't go into my salary because I don't have one. If you're a regular listener to the show and you've had lots of hours of free entertainment from me, please consider giving to this Indiegogo campaign. There's some excellent perks available as part of it. It's not just about you giving, we give back. We want to spread the tragedy, share the tragedy, take the tragedy up to Edinburgh. You can find out more about the campaign and donate to it over at bit.ly forward slash tragic fringe. Any amount that you can donate is really, really appreciated from tiny amounts to large amounts. It all adds up to make something beautiful. And that's all I really want to do as as a person creating stuff. Please help me do it. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, it's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the app store there are lots of ways to get better acquainted